Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast, Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series, Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series, SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Colin's Last Stand Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. Today I'm joined by my brother, as always, Dagan Moriarty. I should say, as always, my brother, Dagan Moriarty. You're not my brother, as always. <laughs> I always am your brother. That's true. That's that's a good point. How are you? Hi, guys. We just went to dinner. We, we did, back. It's indeed. actually like one in the morning while we're it was recording delish. this. Not, not, not typically unusual that we record this. No, this is not on This Colin. late. But yeah, no, the dinner was good. Incredibly expensive. It was very delish. It was worth it. See... When you get great food and great cocktails like that, mm-hmm. I think it's worth the spend. Yeah, the cocktails were good. Yeah, I think it's very be. worth it to spend. So I'm a little drunk. As we're Are recording. you really? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. I had two old fashions and an Irish coffee, so I'm like a little buzzed. Yeah. You're, you get, you're good to go. Yeah, so I'm, I'm feeling great. I'm not like, you know, out of control. I'm not wild. Right. No, but you're not wild. I, I don't really get wild when I get drunk. Yeah. You know, I don't wishes. I don't know that I've ever had an issue when I've been drunk before, like an issue with a person. You know? Perhaps the time you and PJ were throwing hamburgers off the roof deck of my apartment at my neighbor's and almost got us evicted. Perhaps that time was a wait, little... What was, what was, wait, what <laughs> you was... You don't remember that no, time? I don't remember. <laughs> Perhaps that time was a little bit... But other than that, wait, I think tell was, me that story. I don't know what the hell so you're talking about. you and PJ were out visiting PJ's me your at, best friend. PJ's my, be- my best friend. PJ's been mentioned on the podcast many times, but... And I think you were about 15. I was telling my daughter this story, actually, the other day. You were probably 15 or 16 at the time... It was sometime in the summer. Everybody was off for the summer, so you were, you know, obviously off from school. And you came out with PJ to visit in Philly, and it was it was us, you know, you and Paige, myself, and a couple other friends. I had an apartment with a friend of mine, Alex, and we had a roof deck with a barbecue. It was a common. I think there was four apartments in the building, and we all had access to the roof. And we were making hamburgers, and it was my friend Brian and Jeff, all the usual suspects. And I believe it was you and PJ who decided that you would throw, make the hamburgers or the veggie burgers, whatever, and then start throwing them down at my neighbors in the neighborhood, <laughs> which were, which were actually there was like a, a like kind of like a towny bar across the street where a lot of the older gentlemen in the neighborhood went, you know, like a really Archie Bunkerish sort of place. Was I drinking? Uh, yeah, I believe there were forty ounces yeah. involved. <laughs> And uh, you guys started throwing, apparently started throwing hamburgers at my neighbors. And uh, I got, we got an eviction notice under the door the next day. <laughs> like this, I, I had to. I have no recollection of yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. This is a real thing. And Alex was like, what the hell is this? And unfortunately, my landlord's real estate office, I won't mention who, what the real estate agency, but his real estate agency office was at the um, street level of our, our building which is a completely unfortunate. 
But it was convenient when I had to go down there and beg for him not to evict us. <laughs> and yeah, I just totally blamed, blamed you. I said, you know, it's my 15-year-old brother and his friends. You know, it, meanwhile, his it was friends. my much older friend. And please, like, I had no idea he was doing that. So I have that. no recollection. You don't remember that? No. Oh, it was pretty funny. In wild. retrospect, it's hilarious. <laughs> But <laughs> throwing veggie burgers. <laughs> I believe PJ was doing that. Yeah, that sounds very PJ. PJ, the one that would we would go bowling with, and the game was to not let the ball hit the, the lane. Yeah. Try to hit it on what on the fly. Hit hit the pins on a fly. Definitely got kicked out of at least two or three bowling alleys because of him. Yes, in multiple states as well. <laughs> it's a source of great pride. Yeah, the island, Connecticut, maybe yeah, New Jersey yeah, or Pennsylvania. Oh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Pennsylvania. Dagan, today's topic of CLS knockback, for people that are curious, this is knockback, a retro podcast. <laughs> I don't, we told you a retro story about being apparently throwing veggie burgers at people. <laughs> that was, it was in the 90s. It was, so. yeah, that was in the, it was late night. If I was 16, I guess I was, yeah, it was like 99, maybe summer 99, something like something that. Something like that. Today's topic was chosen by our patrons over at Collins Last Stand's Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. If you support us there, it's a $2 a month, $2 a month or higher tier. You're able to vote on topics, submit topics, vote on other people's topics, etc. And this is the topic that people brought up and wanted us to do, and I'm excited about it. It's our Me favorite too. guilty pleasure movies. <laughs> You're right. We kind of have to interpret this term. In fact, in the Uber on the way to the restaurant we were talking about with Erin, my girlfriend, what does this mean? Because she had brought up Armageddon as an example for her, which is a, a movie from 1997 or ni- I think 1998. With Ben Affleck and I was looking at that and I'm like, that is a great guilty pleasure movie. That's exactly what I'm thinking about. A movie that doesn't have maybe critical acclaim and might even be bad, but or mediocre, but something that you can't get enough of. Sure. So I don't want to hear anything from you, Dagan, that's an Academy Award winner. And I also don't want to hear things that you really do feel are good. Okay. I'm gonna give you an example of a movie that I think you and I could have both put on this list, but okay. that were that I don't think is appropriate in my opinion. I don't know if it's on your list in this case. Okay. Is the Patriot. Like I, we, I don't we, have we, it we authentically think the Patriot's great. And it's not really critically panned either. So these are movies I think that just don't fit your profile and aren't exceptionally well respected. I think that's pretty well said. I think that's a, a, a great way to put it. Do you want to do a little change in the subject topic to, to begin with? We should. So We'll do it quickly. Yeah, so Dave, just in case you're unfamiliar, I'm sure you guys are getting familiar with this. We're doing a new, we're trying something new. Yeah. Called changing the topic, right? Is that what it is? Changing, changing the subject. T- changing the subject. Sorry about that. Changing that's the subject. Right. Yeah. I got to remember that. Changing with an apostrophe. Changing the subject. Changing the subject. And this is basically a topic that is a non sequitur to what we're actually doing the episode on, but a topic that wouldn't necessitate or require a full episode on its own. Exactly. You know, it's not probably going to warrant a full episode on its own. And I'm also throwing a little bit of extra equation into this Mm. that the topics I'm choosing are foreshadowing other big topics later on. A little bit. I'm trying to do that a little bit. So today's topic is a very broad one. Dragons. Oh. Where do you stand on dragons? Give me your impression of dragons. This doesn't. There's no rules to this. It's just what comes to mind and what you want to say, your thoughts on this topic. Let me bring you down a historical road. Okay, please. Because oh, I think Aaron and I were talking about this recently. I was talking about this with someone. I think it must have been Aaron because I don't really talk to anyone else. The idea of dragons makes a ton of sense when you realize that they were finding bones of these massive creatures in eroded riverbeds and stuff like that, that would indicate that these things existed at one point. At one point. And I think that that's lost on people. This isn't 
a god like like a Roman or Greek god that's just completely made up or based on a movement of a star or a planet in the sky or a meteorological thing or anything like that. Dragons are based on the fact that they were finding dinosaur bones and didn't know what they were. So I think that it's really quite interesting because that's logical. Like they basically were predicting in some weird way. And I'm not saying this was universal, but that they were like, we have the evidence that these things existed. Here's the evidence in the earth. Just as if we bury one of our own and they turn in the bones, you know, ashes to ashes kind of situation. Sure, sure. So I, that, you know, I think dragons are cool, but I think it's even cooler. It's not unreasonable. Like if you found those bones in your backyard, ignorant of, you know, paleontology, for instance. Yeah. Which would even as of 150 or 200 years ago, there was a complete ignorance on paleontology. Yeah. What would you course. think? Right. Oh, I'm, I'm, it's unbelievable. So that's what comes to mind for me. That's a great impression. I really love that. I, and I always appreciated the disparity between or the differences between the way Asian cultures represent their dragons and sort of what European and more Western cultures represent. There's a difference. There's an aesthetic difference, you know, depicted in fiction. And I will just say my favorite dragon of all time, mm. and it's never gotten better than this for me, depicted on screen is when Maleficent transforms into that black dragon in Sleeping Beauty. Sure. That great, is the coolest dragon ever. Great example. I hold every dragon up to that as the barometer for a dragon design. Even like, dragon why can't it look more like that dragon? Even Dragon Quest. Especially Dragon Quest. Fair enough. Even Smog. And we won't get too... Smog. Smog. <laughs> Smog. Dude, those trailers used to annoy the shit out of me. <laughs> Where, what was the name of that movie? The one... It was like the something of Smog. The Desolation of Smog. And the, the, like the Desolation of Smog. <laughs> They oh, like got like seven there. syllables out of that word, <laughs> where it was like somehow. We'll get there. Oh, we're gonna get there. Yeah, we're gonna, we'll do a Lord of the Rings. Not today topic. though. Today's not the day. Tomorrow will probably be the day. Today is. But today is not that day. <laughs> <laughs> being a role playing game fan, and you being a role playing game fan, and also a fan of fantasy and Dungeons and Dragons. Yep. There was always a ubiquity to to the presence of dragons in the media that I was consuming. That. It's almost rote, like I just expect it. But I never really think about them. They're pretty interesting creatures. Definitely. They're pretty interesting hypothetical or really fake creatures, but it shows the extent of the human mind. And again, I just love that however these myths spread, I, I wonder if the dragon spread to Europe. I don't know how things spread around. I wonder if it has anything to do with the Silk Road or Marco sure. Polo. That's a great point. It might have something to do with Marco Polo. I think Marco Polo introduced pasta to Europe from China. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Every time something Italian comes over the <laughs> And then you do it and then I have to do it in an even more dramatic you do it better, much better, actually. Dig, I think the best way... I selected five movies you did as well? Yes. Okay, so I think what would be the most effective thing in whatever order you want to do for our Guilty Pleasure movies is to just go back and forth. I think you'll start and then I'll go and so on and so forth. I'm very eager to do that. I think it's going to be fun. I want to see if we have any overlaps, which I don't know. I, don't th I doubt we will. I doubt we will. And I'm I'm curious. Did a lot did a lot of people write in for this one? That's what I was going to say. We'll, we'll wrap everything up at the end of this episode with our reader comments. Okay. People did submit. Not too many, but people did submit for this topic. I'm looking forward to that, a too. A few recommendations recommendations for their own well not recommendations you know their verdicts own. on their own guilty pleasure yeah movies. yeah that's good okay cool so i'm gonna kick it to you and you can lead off in any way you can i'll tell okay. you that i'm going in alphabetical order you're going alphabetical i just feel like that's the fairest way to do it i think that's good i pondered on how i was gonna do it. was i gonna do it in the order of release from newest to oldest mm -hmm. but 
my movies, I should start by explaining my movies. I tried to pick a nice variety. Initially, I wanted to do movies that were funny that would kind of make people laugh, but it didn't ring true in the fact of like these weren't really movies that I necessarily adored. You know, they were just movies that I thought were funny that I grew up with that kind of fit the bill. So I chose movies that I will let me let me preface this by saying I chose movies that with that I have mostly have funny anecdotes associated with and also you know things that for me I'm I'm sort of a movie buff I I really enjoy film and I consider myself to have a very diverse taste in film and everything from indie film I don't discriminate everything from indie film to major studio flicks you know popcorn flicks everything but I consider myself to have really good taste in films. I know a pretty pretty good amount of films. I know directors. So these are movies that I will just always go back to the well. And for me, I think a lot of them are just pure fun. They're just fun films. I don't think they're necessarily even considered good films. Maybe they did good in the box office. Maybe they didn't. But for me, these are just fun. Most of them are just fun movies and movies that I wanted to share with you guys and relate certain anecdotes about how I found the movies, how I stumbled upon them in my life and all that kind of stuff. So the the first one I'm going to bring up, and you tell me if you've seen this one, Kyle, is the film 2005. It came out initially called Wedding Crashers. Oh, yeah. Great, great film. Great comedy. That's with Owen Wilson? Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn. Right. Star. Now, it came out, apparently it came out in the theaters in 2005. I didn't see it until it it came on cable in March of 2007. And it was either on HBO or Cinemax. I'm not sure. But how I first saw this movie was my wife, Helene, was pregnant with our first child. And I was a nervous wreck. Having, I was about to have my first kid. I was 29 years old. And super nervous leading up to, you know, the whole labor, the whole nine months. I was very, you know, like as a father, as, as a new father is, as a new parent is, you know, I was very nervous. So... The night of March 28th, Helene, very late at night, Helene went into labor. And we were in our first home at the time. It was just me and her. Her family was nearby. She went into labor. Our midwives advised us, as, you know, and doctors advised us of what's going to happen. So we knew, you know, we kind of knew the deal. She called, you know, we don't live far from Helene's parents. Her mom came over. And it was a very protracted situation where the labor was lasting a while let's say it started at one in the morning and it went on through the night and you know we were in touch with the midwives and the doctors and they advised us you know you know you don't go into the hospital until a certain time so you just stay home and they monitor you call and you monitor it and I was completely stressed out so I went downstairs and put on the tv and what came on a movie I had never heard of before wedding crashers right and it was the most delightful funny flick ever i'll explain a little bit about what it was and it just completely took me away from my stress of the situation and i have to cop to completely it ended up completely ignoring what was going on upstairs while i enjoyed this movie on my couch (laughs) and you know which is actually funny and you know helene still teases me about that but i got lost in something and i was able to distract myself for a little while and it worked out so the wedding crashes is about Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn play they they play uh, divorce mediators actually that's what they do for a living but on the 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 sticky wicket is on the weekends what they do is 
they crash quote unquote weddings where they go to a wedding that they weren't invited to in order to meet women and sleep with them. And, you know, they're sort of, have this salacious thing going on and they they're you know they're womanizing and they're young young guys and they're doing all this stuff and the chemistry between Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson is amazing it's they're they're so funny together and basically what ends up happening is you know they ramp up their game and ramp up their game until they go to the wedding of the US Secretary of the Treasury's oldest daughter and the Secretary of the Treasury is played by Christopher Walken who's hilarious and the Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn characters meet, I think it's John and Jeremy. John and Jeremy meet the treasurer's other two, the secretary of the treasury's other two daughters. And they're targeting them. To, oh, we're going to hook up with the other two daughters of the, the secretary. It's going to be amazing. And they basically both end up falling in love and sort of not to go into a big thing because we have a lot of movies to cover, sort of, you know, hijinks ensue. But the movie is, if you guys haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's a great comedy with great chemistry. I won't ruin it, but Will Ferrell plays a character towards the end of the movie that he's not even in the credits for some reason, but it, it he steals the show. It's hilarious. And, you know, Rachel McAdams is in this. I already said I already said Christopher Walken. Highly recommended. And this movie, as I researched it, I found out this movie did amazing in the box office. And they credit it almost single-handedly with kind of resurrecting that sort of raunchy rated R comedy flick and ushering like a whole new era of that back in. And I, I call it a guilty pleasure movie because it is kind of plot heavy for a comedy as far as what happens, but it's not a very complex or complicated movie. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a movie that's just pure fun. Although I'm saying it's a guilty pleasure movie, it's one of those movies that I think all these movies on my list fit the bill. If it comes on, I'm watching it. It's in that same pantheon for me as it came out around the same time as 40-Year-Old Virgin and Grandma's Boy and a couple other great unexpected films. Wedding Crashes, I remember seeing and thinking that the movie was going to be terrible. And I, and I say that me as, too. I say that as someone who I love Owen Wilson. I think Owen Wilson's hilarious. He's great. You know, Bottle Rocket specifically is just yeah. absolutely out, oh my God. completely out of control movie so good Apple all Jack. the Wes Anderson movies just Applejack is the best <laughs> but <laughs> it's I think 40 year old virgin is actually at the top of that list for me of movies where I'm like this is that's a great makes me, that movie actually makes me piss my pants it's, it's so, so good. good I had no idea when I rented it on Netflix DVD mail you know in college that yeah. it was gonna be this amazing thing same thing with grandma's boy I love that movie and it's yeah it's in that same era of, yeah, definitely. Of, uh, yeah, the, the almost raunchy ro comedy revival, which is great. Yeah, totally. Same pantheon. Yeah. Great choice. Thank you, my friend. Great choice. Shall I give you one? Please. I'm going to start. Again, I'm going alphabetically. Okay. I'm going to start with 1995's Clueless, starring Alicia Silverstone. <laughs> Very nice. Now, I feel like Clueless is a female-gendered movie, but it's not really when you watch it. And... Alicia Silverstone, obviously, this very hot actress in the 90s, but was I was young cute. enough at the time where I wasn't really engaging with the movie at the, at first. Alicia Silverstone became much more relevant to me later. Yeah. But at the time, I wasn't engaging with Clueless because, you know, Alicia Silverstone's hot and I want to watch, you know, her, her movie. It was a glimpse into, and we've talked about this with other films, both privately and I think on the show as well, 
growing up in the tri-state, there was this aura around California and the way people lived there and what life was like there. And we got glimpses into it with other movies that we saw and other television shows that we saw. Actually, Amy Heckerling is the one who directed and produced and I think wrote Clueless. And she also directed Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, wow. And she directed, I have, I have it written down here as well because I didn't know this. I knew that. She directed European Vacation as well. So she has this experience not only with comedies, but specifically with Fast Times, kind of California aesthetic yeah. that I think Clueless represented a great deal. And Clueless is a guilty pleasure movie for me, like through and through. I really, really enjoy watching that film. Paul Rudd's in it. That's in, right. In like a very early role as her stepbrother who she kind of like falls in love with. There's a great charm to that movie. For yes, me. that's well said. It's a guilty pleasure movie because I don't think people take it seriously. But I think once you watch it, I don't think that you can necessarily walk into Clueless and be like, well, that, was, that wasn't worthwhile or that was a bad experience. I think it was a fun movie. With my guilty pleasure stuff, I'm not necessarily categorizing. I wouldn't categorize any of my five films as bad, although some other people would, would sure. say that about it. Sure, sure. But I think Clueless does represent almost as not only exactly what I think about in guilty pleasure movies, but also the zeitgeist of the time. A lot of my movies come from that era. Actually, all of them come from like a six year spread. I think so. Oh, that's interesting. So yeah, Clueless. Have you seen, have you seen Clueless recently? I, ha- I haven't seen it in a long time. It's an interesting film, dude. It's a really interesting view into 1995, you know, it's a time capsule, right? And what an interesting time the mid nineties were. Oh, definitely. And this was a progressive 90s movie in the sense that, and what I mean by that is like, they were rich, they had the best technology at the time, the best cars, the best fashion. So you're seeing a really cool thing where it's like, it it was probably, I didn't see it in a theater, I don't recall. Okay. But I imagine that if high schoolers or middle schoolers or college kids saw Clueless in the theater, that they got the glimpse of the the newest fashion, the greatest technology with beepers and cell phones and the cars, like the scene of them driving on the highway for the first time and stuff like that when they're trying to teach her how to drive is hilarious to me there's just there's something really funny about that film but i think a lot of it has to do not with the comedy for me but with the california kind of connection i love that i love that the california thing is so romantic and and so exotic growing up on the east coast because it just looks so different the weather the palm trees the aesthetic of the architecture everything you know that's a great i love bringing up that point you know i I think we always inherently felt that as skateboarders too is like we have to make it out you know to where skateboarding is really huge you know, near the beach with the palm trees and the spots. And there was, you know, the surf culture that extended into the skate culture. There was always a really a romanticism around California growing up on the East Coast, especially for our generations. I think that's a great point. And we've talked about it, Dagan, in the past, but I'm not sure if that still exists. Mm. In the day and age of the Internet and kind of instant connectivity and Instagram and all these kinds of things, I wonder if there's a little bit of... Like the world has gotten way smaller in that in that regard. That's a really fascinating point. I mean, I, I think unfortunately that's probably there's a, there's probably quite a bit of truth to that. But it all still comes down to being in that spot. If you're not, you could look at pictures and videos all day. You have to be, you know, even when I come to California now, when I got off the plane yesterday, there's a palpable difference. It, you're in a, it feels different. The air is different. It smells different. The aesthetic is different. Everything looks different. The vegetation is different. You know, the color of the sky is different. Every The people are different. Everything's different. So, you know, it's a world away. I mean, New York, the East Coast of the United States and California are worlds apart, not just geographically, but just, you know, it's a much different place. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Culture-wise and everything else. So. For sure. That's a great one. And whatever happened to Alicia Silverstone? I was reading a little bit about her and, re- and researching this. Like, she's still around. She still does, you know, some projects. But okay. I think that she... I don't know, man. I don't know that even a lot of these actresses or actors talk about it, but there seems to be a passivity in her in the sense of like some people just don't or they have their moment in the spotlight or whatever, but they don't really want it or pursue it in the the heaviest way. She seems like that to me because she did Batman and all these other movies in the mid 90s, but in the late 90s, but she was like a hot commodity. And I wonder like if you're if you don't really remember her in a lot of projects, then it's I think the chances are greater that she just didn't want it that bad. I hope that's true. I would rather that be true than the fact of, like you know, movie producers and studios saying like associating her with the 90s and a certain time period and saying she's outdated. Put the timestamp, you know, her date, she's expired. Throw her out that I would hate that. I would hate for that to happen to anybody. So I would rather it be on her own. You know, a lot of a lot of people choose different careers or they start families or they become they go into the production side they're on the other side of the camera whatever happens you know so that's interesting I, yeah I, it's funny i would have never thought of her if you didn't bring her up but she was so emblematic of the 90s she was really very much so Dave, what's your next movie so my next film i think i want to talk about i think i'm going to go right over to this one this is a biggie for me and i think you'll appreciate this movie kyle it is 2007's super bad Another great choice. Emblematic comedy film of the, you know, the 2000s, the mid 2000s, uh, came out in 2007. I saw it on cable in 2008. I never knew about Superbad in the theaters. And I don't think I knew too much about Judd Apatow. I don't think I really knew too much about him at this point. So Superbad was a film produced by Judd Apatow, but it was written by the beloved comedy team of Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg semi-autobiographical account of Seth and Evan growing up together and hilarious. So basically the story centers on, you know, it takes place in California, in Southern California, Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah and Christopher Mintz Plass play friends, but it's, it's, it's mostly centers around Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah's character of, Seth and Evan, they play Seth and Evan, and they're childhood best friends that are about to graduate from high school. They're about to go to college. They're going to go to two different, you know, it turns out that one of them's going away to college and one of them's not sure what's going on yet. And it's sort of that last summer leading up to leaving for school and, you know, whatever 17-year-old boys get up to. Traditionally, you find out very early on in the film that they're not very popular. They don't have a great social standing in school. And their whole thing is, we're going to stop being nerds, we're going to party, we're going to get laid. That's the whole MO. But the funny part of this movie is, as funny as it is, it's hilarious. Laugh out loud funny and very appealing. And the dialogue is fantastic. The friendship between Seth and Evan really rings true. Not only their sort of interaction, but all the business that goes on in the movie as far as dealing with the older kids you know, at parties, dealing with school, trying to obtain booze, fake IDs. There's a real sense of reality in this movie for ha- for as silly it is, which is always very striking to me. And I think that's what makes the movie really resonate. There's a truth behind all this stuff. And I think that's because when Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg wrote it, it really is a an autobiographical account of, thing, account of the things they experienced. And apparently... Seth and Evan started writing this when they were 13. Wow. 
Impressive. And it took years to develop it. In fact, initially it was so early on that Seth Rogen was going to play the character of Seth and this became way too old into his 20s or maybe even to his early 30s. And then if you remember, you've seen the movie, right, Carl? Yes. Seth Rogen plays one of the cops. To Bill, Seth Rogen and Bill Hader play hilariously play cops in the movie. And just a, mem- a super memorable movie. And another point that I want to make about Superbad is I had a brand new at this point in 2008. I had a you know I, I had a one year old. I was a new dad. I was commuting to New York five days a week still from Pennsylvania. You know I live in Bucks County in Pennsylvania. I have a working wife. It was a very stressful time, and you know especially just being a new dad and all the nervousness that comes with that. You know. And this is a movie that kind of took, I would, I would remember it. My daughter was pretty tough as a kid. Like she wouldn't go to bed right away. I had a, my son was much easier, but she was the one that was sort of more cantankerous and hard to put down. And she would cry all night sometimes. And she was, she was, she could be a toughie until she was like two years old. And I remember finally getting her in bed and coming downstairs. Again, this was a movie that I didn't see in the theater. I saw it on cable and this was one of the movies that I hope I was, you know, hoping was on at night when I came down to kind of settle down on the couch and just kind of, you know, just pure escapism, you know, just a fun movie for fun's sake, purely silly. There's some sweetness to it as well with the friendship between the two main characters, but just really, really hilarious and something that you could escape in for two hours and that I've seen multiple times. And one of those films that's when it's on television, I have to watch it. Doesn't matter how many times I've seen it. A cl- for me, one of the one of my favorite comedies of all time, for sure, hundred percent, definitely top five. Very nice selection. Thank you, my friend. That is a good movie. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. It's a great one. Next up for me, Dagan, is 1996's Independence Day. <laughs> nice, very nice. Roland Emmerich wrote and directed this movie. Went on, you know, wrote and directed a lot of things before that. And most famously, he kind of picked up a little steam in the 90s. He did Godzilla, I think, after that. First of all, I saw Independence Day with, and I don't know if you remember this, I saw Independence Day with you and PJ in the movie theater. Yes, I do remember that. And I was immediately smitten with this movie. And the reason that I was smitten with it was not only because it was a sci-fi movie that I could, that I enjoyed and I like Alien Invasion and, and kind of the darkness of it, but that I thought that the movie was actually quite clever and that people weren't really giving it enough credit for how good it was. And I made this claim for many years until in 2016, they released Independence Day Resurgence, finally. You, people might remember that there was a sequel to Independence Day literally rumored for almost 20 years. They used to call it ID Forever and ID 2000 and things like that. And they were gonna, it was going to come out in like the late 90s, early 2000s. They just never did it. I don't know if Roland Emmerich couldn't get it off the ground or whatever. And I know Will Smith kind of was a, a big sticking point. They ended up not being able to get him for the new film. And, right, that's right. And he made a really wise choice because Resurgence is fucking awful. I've never seen Really it. bad. One is of the worst bad? movies I've ever seen in the theater. And it was really disappointing because I was really excited about it. I actually like, went opening day and everything to see it because I love Independence Day. And I was like, I got to support this movie. And what's funny is that I think Will Smith was doing Suicide Squad at the time, but Roland Emmerich and the team offered him way more money to do Independence Day, and he still turned it down. And so his son is the kind of character in it. Holy moly. But back to the original Independence Day, what I loved about the cleverness of it was that it grounded this alien invasion flick in a way that tied into our conspiracy theory kind of culture in the United States, that the Roswell ship that crashes in in New Mexico in, in 1947, according to our war was one of their scouting ships. 
and that the aliens that they captured and did autopsies on and the ship they captured were the same aliens and the same ships that they used to invade the planet. And when the alien ship gets close, the ship turns on that they've captured and the aliens kind of sprout to life and all those kinds of things and these like back to tank looking kind of things that they're in. And I thought that that was really clever, especially what I especially loved about it was that the aliens, as you saw them in the ships, were not those were their those were their suits. They had these almost exosuits that were biological, but they were actually these small, almost teddy bear sized creatures inside of them. Right. That's right. And there was just something very, very likable about Independence Day. And it made an enormous amount of money. And people went and saw it that summer in 1996. But. It's not a very well-respected movie, and it's a guilty pleasure movie for me. I've seen that movie 50 times. Have I mean, that's, you that's, really? There's no joke. I mean, that's no joke. I, mean, I never knew it. you loved it so much. Just whenever it was on TV, I had it on VHS. I had it on DVD. And I was crestfallen when the sequel came out. I really was – and you can ask Aaron because we went and saw it together. We went and saw it at Alamo Drafthouse, which I love. I love Alamo Drafthouse. Like, you get, just get bombed. At Alamo, you know, just they're just. Have you ever been to one of those? I don't think I ever have. Where like you, have you been to the theater where you like eat and drink and they sure. they serve you and Definitely, stuff? It's very similar thing. It's yeah, not, okay. it's, not, so it's, it's nothing just, different than that. But really. it's a chain, right? Right. And you know, I remember being so excited. I brought a couple friends. I paid for them. I'm like, we're gonna see the new Independence Day. <laughs> it was supposed to be the second in a trilogy. They were gonna do a third one. I can't imagine they're possibly gonna do a third one now. And it was such a letdown. It was just a letdown in every way. Oh, and, it, and it squandered this idea that everyone had in their minds that, like, the aliens are obviously going to return. They got destroyed by this computer virus, you know, as, you know, famously Jeff Goldblum somehow with an Apple laptop interfaces with the OS of the alien network. I don't know how that exactly Makes works. Sense. But, you know, they I guess they were on the same architecture. <laughs> and... The interesting kind of piece that I think you'll appreciate, Dagan, we were talking about The Patriot earlier. Roland Emmerich wrote and directed that movie, which I didn't realize. I just never realized that about The Patriot. So a little bit of a weird problem. Yeah, I actually didn't know that before today when I was considering doing The Patriot, but ended up being sort of an honorable mention. But yeah, he's quite prolific. And diverse, apparently, in his talents. It it always does me good to see Roland Emmerich. (laughs) Well done. Thank you. So, yeah, I, I wanted to throw Independence Day in the mix. I, I think that its resurgence sequel has done a great deal of damage to that nascent IP that could have been much more. I think they also waited way too long. I think it would. I think an Independence Day sequel in 98, 99 at the latest would have been really much better. But when you go back and look at Independence Day, it actually really holds up from a technological standpoint, not only with the computer, like these kind of very, I don't want to say very early, but this kind of like mid-90s lacking processing power kind of very primitive cg that they do but also the the practical effects the aliens are not cg and there's something very cool about the way they look so i wanted to give a shout out to that and i want to give it a special shout out to of course bill pullman the president who ends up getting into a fighter jet and fighting the aliens himself (laughs) and randy quaid who of course gives his life for the cause how wild was it when you saw the White House explosion scene, a famous scene? Famous. And that's a practical effect. Iconic scene. By the way, that's a miniature. So, Independence Day, 1996. Very nice. My second guilty pleasure movie. Very nice. One that we saw together for the very first Great time. Great pick. And I remember that. I remember we saw that at Brookhaven Multiplex, right? But we saw everything at Brookhaven mm-hmm. Multiplex. R.I.P. 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 That's a good. That's a good one. All right, I'll kick it over to my third one. It's a little-known movie called Goodfellas. 
Just kidding. I'm not doing Goodfellas. <laughs> I was going to say, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a whole other knockback topic. So this is one. Of course, I'm, I want to do an animated movie or two, if I could think of one. And this is, a, this is definitely a guilty pleasure movie for me. And one that I hope I could open some eyes to, because I'm not sure it's particularly well known if you're not an animation buff. But the listeners will let us know. And it's called Wizards, created by animation legend Ralph Bakshi, who is a New York-based... If you don't know too much about Ralph Bakshi, I'll briefly explain. He was a New York-based animator that came up working in the various studios, Terry Tunes and all that kind of stuff, in the, in the 50s, into the 60s. And basically went on to become an animation... Sort of an animation entrepreneur and a filmmaker... Um, went on to become an animation director and did stuff like The Amazing Spider-Man and everything, but then started doing his own. He wanted to be a filmmaker and sort of threw these movies together on shoestring budgets, very guerrilla-style productions. Um, He's known for a lot of movies like Fritz the Cat. He did the adaptation of Fritz the Cat, Heavy Traffic, Coonskin. He did the animated version of Lord of the Rings, American Pop. Later on in the 80s, he did Cool World. If anybody remembers that movie, but he's a very scrap, known to be a very scrappy filmmaker, mostly animated films. He's a Brooklynite, born and raised in Brooklyn, and spent his career, most of his career, working in New York, and always traditionally made very urban films that centered on city life in one regard or another. And Wizards was a movie that came out in the late 70s, I believe it came out in 77, was his first, it was a fantasy film. Put out in a, in a time when fan, the, the fantasy genre was sort of blossoming. So the timing was good, but it was a little weird that Ralph Bakshi would be doing a fantasy film, a fan, an, an animated film at that. And basically, the premise of Wizards... Well, first of all, an interesting anecdote about Wizards. It was Fox was putting out the film, and it was the same time that George Lucas was working on Star Wars. So at a certain point... George Lucas and Ralph Bakshi became friendly because they were both asking for more money for their films and they and Fox was famously refusing both of them. And they became sort of bedfellows and got to know each other through their various struggles with dealing with Fox. And eventually, this movie was originally called War Wizards. And because they came out at almost the same time, I think Wizards came out like two weeks after Star Wars or something... George Lucas went to Ralph Bakshi and said, listen, you can't call your, we have a movie, it's called Star Wars, can you change this title? And Bakshi, like out of the goodness of his heart, was like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Because no one knew what Star Wars was going to be, keep in mind, right? Star Wars sounded just as crazy as Wizards. And he changed, Ralph Bakshi kind of acquiesced and said, okay, I'll name it Wizards. And did that favor for George Lucas. So the movie is basically about, the main premise is about sort of magic versus technology. And it centers around, it's a post-apocalyptic setting. World War III has basically ravaged the Earth. There's very very little human survivors. Most of the beings have become various mutants due to the heavy radiation, and thousands and thousands of years pass. This movie starts with about, I'm not exaggerating, 12 minutes of like exposition and narration without any animation. It's just stills. <laughs> just explaining the story. It's very overly complex, but it basically comes down to a battle between two wizards. Basically, the Earth is divided into these mutants, these mutated beings, and then the descendants of man, which were like the elves, the dwarves, and the fairies, which are kind of the, that's the magical 
light element and then you have the mutants which were sort of you know quote unquote the bad guys and the queen of the fairies has twin boys who are with turn out to be wizards one is avatar and one is black wolf one is a good wizard and one is a bad wizard when the mother dies black wolf tries to usurp his mother's kingdom and basically is defeated by his brother the good wizard avatar who banishes him from the land and black wolf swears revenge so later on as black wolf grows up and he rises in power he assembles like an army of mutants and tries to take over the world basically but avatar is opposing him on the other avatar the good wizard is opposing him on the other side so what black wolf does is he excavates all this ancient technology which turns out to be all this nazi Nazi materials and Nazi propaganda. Interesting. Yeah, like old Super planes. And so what he finds is that he can't motivate his troops. They're cowards. So Black Wolf finds this film projector. It's very strange even explaining it and being even being involved and intimate with her for so long. It's still strange explaining it. But he finds a film projector and he finds that projecting footage of Nazi war reels inspires his troops. And so they kind of gain an upper hand. And what the movie is, there's it's traditionally animated, but there's a lot of live action because you see these old Nazi war reels, which is real footage. And then there's a lot of rotoscoping, which is, if you guys don't know what rotoscoping is, briefly describe it. It's basically drawing over film footage. It's basically tracing over film footage frame by frame so that it looks, you're tracing live action, and that's your animation. And they did it because it was on such a guerrilla budget, as Ralph Bakshi's films often were. So you had this brilliant animation by guys like Irv Spence, and these brilliant guys who like came up animating Tom and Jerry, who were these veteran animators. And then you had that intercut with live action footage and rotoscoping. Some of the stuff was like matted on live action backgrounds. All the backgrounds are drawn. So it's really a hodgepodge of styles and aesthetics. And it comes across as a little sloppy, but you could see the love put into it. You know, like a lot of Ralph Bakshi's films. It's, it's a shoestring budget. Ralph Bakshi was, especially during this period, was notorious for not doing pencil tests. In other words, not doing animation and seeing how it would work roughly before they committed to ink and paint. The animators would go straight to, okay, you can't, we, there's no time to pencil test. You animate it once, hopefully it's good, and that's it. And you could see there's some weirdness going on. Some of the stuff is beautiful, and some of the walk cycles are weird, and they're stuttering, and there's missing frames, and there's cell painting mistakes. There's a lot of, you could see all the blood, sweat, and tears that went into it, but you could see that it was done on no money, you know? And I think it had a very limited theatrical release. I don't think it was in the theaters very long, maybe six or eight weeks tops. And for me, it's one of those films that smacks of the 70s. You know, you see the graininess to the film. There's the warped sort of feel to the soundtrack. You know, the soundtrack sounds warped, like you could hear the compression in it. You know, because it's all traditional. This is completely analog. This is before anything was digital. And, you know, you could hear that weird sound transfer where it kind of warps a little bit. It feels so nostalgic to me. I didn't see this film until I was already probably very late in high school slash early in college. And I remember one of the video stores in Philly had a very old, tattered, and sun-faded poster of it in their window, like a mom-and-pop video store on Pine Street. 
And by the way, one of the coolest movie posters ever. It's such a cool image. I won't ruin it for you guys. Go look it up. It's such a cool image of one of the bad guy assassin characters called Necron 99. And he's kind of mounted on his like dragon like steed. This is the a movie that is in no way good. It's not a good film. But it tried to be something. Ralph Bakshi, a lot, like a lot of his films, I always appreciated Ralph Bakshi because he was in a space where he didn't have the Disney budgets. But he was bucking against those trends and doing what he wanted to do and he believed in it. And, you know, he made these films. You know, he made feature films and he made several of them. You know, and it's one of those movies that comes on and I have to watch it. And it's the first movie I've mentioned so far that I actually own on DVD or Blu-ray. And it's a very important movie to me because I think it shows that when you're committed, it doesn't matter how much money you have when you're committed to a project and when you're an artist and you have a vision, it's important to carry it through. And I'm very inspired by Ralph Bakshi for that. Not because of his artistic integrity. He's not... He's not a Walt Disney. It's different, but I appreciate him for what he is, and I think this film is emblematic of that. And it's very little known. I really highly recommend you guys go out and watch it because it's quite different than anything else. The 70s and 80s sort of gave us some fantasy films, you know, films like Heavy Metal and Fire and Ice and some other things, but this one I feel like doesn't get a lot of shine, and it probably should just because of, you know, it's, it's a unique thing, and it's part of film history, and it's part of animation history. You know, and I'm, I'm glad that I thought of it because I really want to mention Ralph Bakshi. I would like to do a Ralph Bakshi maybe topic at some point because he's such an interesting man. And he's still with us. And this is a highly recommended one. Of all the movies I'm going to talk about, maybe I would recommend going out and seeing this one first because it's the hardest to obtain. And I really think it's worth watching. I would love to hear what people think of it. Well, go out and check it out. It's a great choice. I never even heard of it. I don't think. Yeah, it's a good one. I'll let you borrow it. I love that. It sounds cool. My next movie, my third movie out of five is, you know, we're going in alphabetical order here, is 2001's Legally Blonde, starring Reese Witherspoon. I like this. And, of course, Luke Wilson. That's right. Legally Blonde, the movie came out in the summer, I think June 2001. I saw it in a theater with my high school girlfriend. And Legally Blonde was always this movie long after we broke up and I left high school and went to college and lived as an adult where... It's another one of those movies that when it's on cable, I, I watch it. And, you have to watch it. And there's something really quite aspirational about it. it. It almost like strikes you as almost like Felicity in the beginning where it's like this kind of obsessed girl, you know, chases her boyfriend or her ex-boyfriend to, you know, to school and to law school. It takes place at Harvard, even though it's filmed in California. And the interesting thing about the movie to me is that it kind of becomes a very feel-good film about a girl who like is underestimated and disrespected and kind of looked at as like a dumb bimbo kind of not like a slutty character, for instance, you know, per se, but more of like just an an idiot and airhead who's there for her boyfriend. Like, you know, she doesn't have the intelligence or the stamina for, for, you know, the, the rigors of law school. And, you know, she figures it out in the end and there's this big triumph for her at the end. And there's, I think a sequel. And I think they're actually making a third one that comes out in 2019 or 2020. And I've not seen the second one and I have no interest in seeing the third one. But this particular film, I think, is just it's a nice feel good pre 9-11, early 2000s mm. movie starring a, a, an actress that I associate with that time, Reese Witherspoon, a pretty talented woman. And she's great. And I, I feel like there's something about the movie that's actually authentically good. I know that it's a movie that just 
just the title itself indicates an, an, a non-serious comedic nature yeah. to it. And obviously it is a comedy and it's it understands what it is. Luke Wilson is actually not really a funny character in it. He's actually like more of a, a grounding agent in terms of seriousness and the encouragement that Elle Woods, which is the protagonist's name, needs or whatever. He doesn't play a character that's over the top or funny or quirky. In any, and I think that's kind of an interesting that look is. for that actor. Yeah, definitely. But I liked it. It was something that always stuck with me. That movie always stuck with me for some reason. And it's a movie I'm more than happy to watch when it's on television. I, I really enjoy Legally Blonde a lot. That's a great one. That's a really great and unexpected one. Yeah. I think it's the quintessential guilty pleasure. It's I don't know that I would claim that it's high cinema or deserved an Academy Award in any respect. But it is one of those films, whether it's a comedy, whether it's a drama. I think everyone has a list of films where, at the very least, it's not as bad as you think. You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think you said it so well, too. That's a very important thing to say. It's a feel-good movie. That resonates. If that resonates with you, that's a play. You know, movies are, you know, not all movies are, you know, an artistic measure, message or there's a there's a place for all of that, you know, but feel-good movies, that's there's a big place for that. You know, escapism and feel-good movies, I think that's really important. And Luke Wilson is such an appealing character actor. And Reese Witherspoon, if I might call it, I have such an appreciation for her because, as you know, Harper Lee's I Love to Kill a Mockingbird. That's my favorite book of all time, which Dana actually turned me into years ago. But Harper Lee's sequel to Kill a Mockingbird came out a few years ago called Go Set a Watchman. And I was very upset about it because in the book, what ends up happening is before, uh, obviously, before we all read it, we already knew. Harper Lee wrote this book, supposedly wrote this book even before To Kill a Mockingbird. But never released it. But basically what happens is the character, if you're familiar with To Kill a Mockingbird, the character of Atticus Finch, as he grows up and becomes an old man, becomes a racist. And when I heard about that, I was extremely upset because he was always the seminal figure in fiction for me and the seminal father figure in fiction for me. And his, everything that seemed to be his philosophy and his philosophical outlook was something that I embodied in my own life. And when I found out that they changed the character, I was very upset. A lot of people were. And it was very controversial. I read the book. I didn't read it, yeah. And it was it's actually quite good, I have to say. It doesn't change the fact of what they did, but it's actually quite good. But I have to say, Reese Witherspoon narrates the audiobook version of the book, and she plays Scout as a young lady now that came back to the south lives in you know lives in the northeast comes back to the south to visit her father and spend some time and she is brilliant in it she makes the book she she makes it okay i think for me and i it gave me such an appreciation for reese witherspoon and showed me her acting chops beyond just her on-screen presence and so i wanted to share that you know anecdote about reese that she's just awesome for me you know, I, it really gave me a great appreciation for her because I think I always thought of her as like a nominal character actor. Okay, she's pretty, you know, a movie star really, but she's good. But I'm not really interested in the projects she does. And then it sort of opened my eyes to her. And, so, you know, I, I stopped being so biased against her as just an average actress. You know, it made me appreciate her more. So if you guys could listen to that audiobook, you know, if you guys have like a free thing on Audible or something, listen to it. She's great. You know, it's funny. I haven't thought about that Harper Lee controversy in, in a couple of years or a few years. Yeah. 
I remember pe- people being really disappointed in it, and I thought it was quite unwise. I always like the Salinger route of just disappearing. Yeah. How do you even follow up a book like To Kill a Mockingbird? I, it's crazy. And maybe that's why she held it back for so long, and I'm not sure why her estate, Harper Lee's estate, decided to release it. But I'm not defending it because it's I still have a problem with it. And Atticus Finch is such an important character to me. I can't overstate that. But you find out, and I don't want to ruin the book because I would like people to read it. It's actually quite heartbreaking. And the portrayal, the exchanges between Scout and her dad as an older man is is quite heartbreaking when she realizes the change and how it breaks her heart. And I think that's what the book's about. I think the book's about, you know, that people in your life could change even the ones closest to you and how you deal with that and how you reckon that and how it also not only affects you, but the people that also have been around both of you for years, you know, and it's heartbreaking. It's very, very well done. I have to say it's very well done. You might not agree with, you know, what happens in the book, but the way it's handled is really quite brilliant and really quite heartbreaking. And I think that's what the book's about. Personally, if I was Harper Lee, I wouldn't have skewed Atticus's character like that just to make a point or present something else. I probably would have wrote a brand new work of fiction if I wanted to talk about that. You know how, you know, the people in your life that you think you know the most, you really don't know them or they are, they can change. And that's sort of a tragic thing that you have to deal with. But it's quite good. It's a good read. What is your fourth film? So number four. I'm going to go with one more animated thing. My last thing my, my last thing is probably the most unexpected thing. So I'm going to go with another animated thing that I kind of want to shine some light on because I don't think a lot of people know about it. And it's an animated feature. It's a non-Disney animated theatrical feature that came out in the late 90s. came out in 97, actually, called Cats Don't Dance. Have you ever seen it, Kyle? I don't know. I don't think so. It was the only animated feature done... By Turner Feature Animation, which was a thing, a one-shot deal. When Turner Feature Animation folded right after they distributed this movie to this theaters. This is the, the Georgia Turner? Like Atlanta Turner? This is Turner. Okay. Yeah, Turner proper. Turner proper. And later they folded, even when, I think Cats on Dance had a very brief theatrical run because it was mishandled. Much like Iron Giant later on, it was completely mismarketed and mishandled. It wasn't. They didn't talk about this movie. They didn't promote it. It was a complete mess. And it, Turner actually dissolved and became kind of merged into WB, to, into Warner Brothers Animation right after this. And Iron Giant only came not too much further later. But it's a story and direction by a man named Mark Dindle, who was a longtime Disney animator. I think he started back at the studio. He went to Cal Arts and had that traje- that sort of Tim Burton, John Lasseter trajectory. Went to Cal Arts. Jumped on to Disney feature animation, I think around Fox and the Hound, and was at Disney all through Fox and the Hound late 70s, all through the 80s, and I think through Aladdin. So worked at Disney as sort of an animator, a lead animator, an effects animator, and this was his directorial debut in the 90s when they were working on Cats Don't Dance, which I think it took them quite a few years to do this film. Initially, interestingly enough, I didn't know this. Michael Jackson was initially attached to this project. I should say it's an animated musical comedy. Michael Jackson was originally supposed to be helming this thing. In 1991, he was going to be overseeing all the music and choreography for the film and, you know, sort of be the main dude behind it. Eventually, he dropped out, and I'm not sure why. I can't find any information for why, but 
and there's no Michael Jackson in this movie at all anymore. And they got Randy Newman to come in and do the music for it. And, you know, it had a kind of a who's who, if you know animation, it had sort of a lot of animation talent from the Disney fold. And basically, to, to briefly describe it, it's a movie that takes place, it's a set piece, it takes place in 1939, and it deal, it's a very cartoony film. It's The main stars of the film are anthropomorphic animal characters, so very much like a Looney Tunes sort of model. And it takes place in 1939, a young cat named Danny, who's from the Midwest, he, he's from Indiana, he's dreaming to go to Hollywood and become a star. And he's like a song and dance man type of thing, and he wants to go out and become a star in Hollywood. And he goes out to Hollywood and basically tries to break in and meets another cat character, a girl cat named Sawyer. And Sawyer is played by Jasmine Guy, and Danny is played by Scott Bakula. They're the two main voices. And it's just sort of them dealing with late 30s, early 40s Hollywood and trying to break into the industry. And the whole story, it's cute. The whole story behind it is that the animals characters that are in Hollywood are very disgruntled because they're relegated to sort of background roles. And the human characters, the humans, are the ones that get all the lead roles. And there's sort of a bias and they're trying to break in and they really can't. And the villain in the movie is a character named Darla Dimple, who's sort of an evil version of Shirley Temple. It's adorable and and horrifying at the same time. It's great. It's an animated film with very cartoony sensibilities. Very beautifully animated, but very quick pacing, very snappy timing. It's very silly. It's very humorous. It doesn't feel like a traditional Disney film where it's heavy and it's got, you know... It's got the really realistic animal characters and, you know, the really gorgeous backgrounds. And it's stylized. It's fun. It's light. And there's a story and there's, you know, unfortunately, not many people know about the movie because it never it was in the theaters for such a short time. It was never promoted. And I found out about it, I think, through somebody I went to early in animation school. I went to somebody I went to school with somebody who recommended it to me and I went out and picked up the VHS copy of it. So I never got to see, I never had the opportunity, like most people never got the opportunity to see it in the theater. It's wonderful. I highly recommend it, especially if you're an animation fan. If you've never seen Cats Don't Dance, check it out. It's really, really different and unique and really wonderful quality. And it's a shame that it didn't get more recognition. And Mark Dindle went on to direct a couple of other films. He went on to direct Chicken Little for Disney and he went on to direct Emperor's New Groove for Disney, which I think is a highly underrated movie as well. And it's the, Emperor's New Groove is really in that same model, very Mark Dindle-esque in that. It's very cartoony, very snappy, very fast-paced, and just a lot of fun. It's just a fun ride. So if you've never seen Emperor's New Groove or Cats Don't, Don't Dance, check it out. Cats Don't Dance is a really wonderful, and I think... If I'm not, I have it on VHS and I have it on DVD, but I believe they're putting together a Blu-ray, a remastered Blu-ray, with some stuff in it from not only Mark Dindle but some of the lead animators in the film, who's kind of, you know, kind of has a great cast of of traditional character animators that have made the rounds through Disney and DreamWorks and all that. So highly recommended, guys. Check it out if you haven't seen it. Very nice, nice choice. And, you, and you've never seen it, right? No. I have to check. You have to check that out. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it looks like I'm gonna have to be consulting some films here myself. <laughs> My fourth movie is D2: The Mighty Ducks 2. 
from 1994, the Mighty Ducks 2, we will just call it for alphabetical Very order nice. reasons. The Mighty Ducks 2 is interesting to me because I really quite enjoyed this movie, also realizing at the time and since then, having seen it dozens of times, that it's so inferior to what I feel like is an authentically great first movie. And I feel like D2 in a way because of its more, it's stranger and looser nature and kind of its absurd plot, which we'll talk about in a moment, diminished the true greatness of the original Mighty Ducks. The Mighty Ducks really is a great all-time sports movie. Whether it's for children, whether it's for adults, it's up there with not only authentic comedies like Caddyshack and Major League for me, which are amazing sports movies, Bad News Bears. Oh, God, yeah. And Slapshot, which is the seminal hockey movie. But the Mighty Ducks, it's about an alcoholic lawyer who's charged with community service because he's caught in the Dewey. It's a really dark movie. When, when we did the Mighty Ducks, for people that don't know, if you support Patreon or Collins Last Stand on Patreon at the dollar level or higher, every month we put up an exclusive episode of Knockback or Fireside Chats. And my best friend and I, Ramon, have been filming or recording episodes about things that Dagan and I really couldn't authoritatively talk about together. And the Mighty Ducks trilogy is one of those things. And we talk about how the original Mighty Ducks is actually somewhat of an adult skewing film in a lot of its themes. It's super, it's super dark. He's an alcoholic. He's a straight up like drunk <laughs> who's charged with coaching this shitty hockey team of like this, these kids that are poor. They're like working class kids. They don't have the proper equipment. Yeah. He drives his limo out onto the ice that they're practicing on. It feels and, a lot and, like Bad News Bears. Exactly. In that regard. For sure. And Emilio Estevez plays Gordon Bombay, who is the, who's, you know, a kind of a, hot shot hockey player when he was a kid who kind of washes out and you get more into this plot in D2 about like what happens with him. He goes into the minors and gets hurt kind of a hack job or whatever. And the original Mighty Ducks is just an authentically great movie. I think that that's not a guilty pleasure movie. I think that's a movie everyone should see. It's, it's just a feel good movie. A lot of interesting actors in it that got their, their start there. Joshua Jackson obviously is the biggest example of a person who became very famous later on who started really on the Mighty Ducks. And obviously Emilio Estevez was always famous or already famous at that point. D2 is outrageous because it collects most of what was the District 5 Mighty Ducks team from Duluth, Minnesota, and turns them into the Team USA at the Junior Goodwill Games in Los Angeles, in which they face off against other peewee hockey teams in this massive tournament. It's totally stupid. Like, like they, they play, I think, in, I think they play at the Pond in Anaheim or something like that. Maybe they play at the old LA Forum. So one of the where the Kings play what were played one of these buildings that is way too big for what they're doing, but they they're selling out like 17,000 people's <laughs> stadiums playing peewee hockey, which is outrageous, just totally outrageous. That's amazing. And there's interesting through lines in the movie that are somewhat somewhat apropos in terms of teaching you something or giving you something to think about. I won't deny that Gordon Bombay kind of gets sucked into this LA culture and this culture of winning and this culture of winning at all costs and disrespecting his team and going to photo shoots and trying to make money and and getting promotion deals and stuff while his team's kind of like struggling in this tournament. So there's there's a feel good aspect to it but it's just so insane especially because it almost reminds me of of, of something like Mega Man or something where like every character has like this special skill or this special thing that they can do. And so they basically cast off like almost half of the team, half of, half of the District 5 team from the original Mighty Ducks and replaces half the team with these just new random cast of characters that are all in Mighty Ducks 3 as well, where they get like Julie the Cat Gaffney, who's like a goaltender from Maine, and they get Luis from, I think he's from Florida, who's like a really fast skater, but he can't stop. And they get Dwayne <laughs> from Texas, who like 
who basically like is an amazing puck handler. And all of these random characters that kind of it, everything, the story kind of culminates in, in this, this final game against Ice, Team Iceland, coached by Wolf the Dentist Stanza, who was called the dentist because he would knock people's teeth out in his own in his own professional career and he played That's in the NH- he played in the NHL for one game and ki- like knocked out a referee and got sus- got banned from the NHL or something like <laughs> that. that's the whole story. It's like a really very strange movie when I you love watch that. it. I it's love very the characterizations. And there's a great scene. There's actually an authentically great scene in the movie in my opinion where Team USA is practicing and Iceland like comes on the ice cuz it's their turn it's their they have ice time and the coaches Wolf, the dentist stanza, and Gordon Bombay face off in a game of three posts. It's a one-on-one game, okay. a full ice one-on-one game where you try to the first person to hit the left post, the right post, and the crossbar wins. So like you're shooting at the net, but you're trying not to hit, not That's to actually cool. score. And they play against each other, and it's this very you can tell that both of them know how to play hockey at this time. Like if you watch the kids play, and there's a lot of body doubles and stuff, you can t- and their equipment's not really scuffed up and stuff. You can tell that they're not really playing, but these guys can actually play the game in real life. And it's a cool little scene where they're playing and they're getting very physical with each other and they're you know shooting these great shots. So D2, while quite inferior from the original movie in every respect, it's a broader movie. It's a, it's a movie that lacks self-awareness. The third one's even worse. It's still a movie that I think is very much worth your time to watch at least once. And a movie that reminds me a great deal of my childhood. I remember getting it on VHS after it was in the theater. I saw it in the theater and getting it on VHS and one of those... For people that don't remember or are too young or just haven't thought about it, like Disney VHSs came in those fat, foamy cases. They weren't. Yeah. They didn't come in like paper sleeves. They came in these very emblematic Disney premium boutique cases, where it kind of helped justify the extra amount of money you were paying for. Yeah, or whatever. exactly. And I remember getting that and watching it for the first time at Grandma's and Grandpa's in in, uh, oh, that's in awesome. Albertson on Long Island, and just falling in love with it. And it's it's just a strange one, man. It's just if you, especially if you're a hockey fan, and especially if you're a fan of the original one, I'm sure you've already seen it. But if you haven't, watch them in order and see the difference between the grounded original Mighty Ducks, a feel good movie, like a feel good classic late '80s, early '90s sports movie, and then compare and contrast that to D2, the Mighty Ducks, the the sequel, and see how different it feels and how how strange it is. And when did D2 come out again? 1994. That was '94. Yeah. Okay. That's so awesome. so that that's my fourth movie. Very nice. Hit me with your final flick. Nice diverse selection you got there. Okay, so I'm going to hit you with my my last one, number 5. This is a movie that's re- really near and dear to my heart. And I don't really talk about it that often, so I'm excited to talk about it a little bit. And it's Walt Disney's 1961 live action film The Parent Trap. <laughs> this movie had a really funny trajectory for me because I as you know, Kyle I had two sisters, two little sisters. You know, I was the oldest, but I was still, when this when I first saw this movie, it was probably, we already had a VCR because we watched it on VHS. So let's say it was like 83, 80, maybe it was 84. So I was a 9, 10-year-old kid, and I didn't really want to watch, like a lot of 9 or 10-year-old boys of that era, I didn't want to watch a lot of quote-unquote girly stuff. And... You know, there was everything that was floating around that the girls would watch. And there were certain things that we would watch together. And there's certain things I knew I sh- or thought I should avoid. So there was like, you know, Pippi Longstockings, Pollyanna, Mary Poppins. 
I didn't like the sound of music then, which is like actually one of my favorite movies now. I, I know you used to really shit. On I it. really, hated I remember the sound that because like, I loved it and used to make fun. If of this us. movie's going on, I'm leaving the room. Like that's how adamant against the movie because I hated musicals. Sing me a song. Edelweiss, Edelweiss. <laughs> <laughs> I lo- I love that movie now, but I am six. on seventeen. <laughs> I loved that shit. So long, farewell, <laughs> Alvita saying goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> such a good movie. I don't know what the hell I was thinking. I don't know what you were thinking either. I was That's such a that. great I was enamored with that film. So good. Doesn't he take down the Nazi flag and like rip it in half or something? Oh, like it's that? like so great. Yeah, like it's all, the whole. And I had know. no idea what Nazism was when I even saw that movie. The first time. I was like, what is the go? I don't know what's going on, but it's I enjoyed so the heavy. soundtrack. It's oh my god! Oh, it's incredibly so, heavy. It's so great, shockingly heavy actually. It's the one in the bit. Nobody, but 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 like Maria. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. What is, what is yeah? Nobody. Nobody. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember what it is. I don't remember. But how do you solve a problem like Maria? Is it a how do you solve a problem like Maria? Oh, that's right. How do you solve a problem like Maria? So good. Mary Poppins. <laughs> Mary Poppins. And Mary Poppins, I wasn't... That was another thing I was kind of misjudging. What's her name? The, what's movie. the actress's name? I can't think of it. Oh, that played Mary Poppins? Yeah, and, and was in Sound of Music. Oh, gosh. Uh, Julie uh, Andrews. Julie Andrews. Right. So, so where would Disney be in the 60s without Julie Andrews? But, Fuck you know, up. so I was always very wary. <laughs> <laughs> and she was in a slew of other things for them, too. Sure. But, yeah, so... I was always very, you know, I was always very defensive, but I remember the parent trap being a sensation in my neighborhood with the boys and the girls. Now we're talking about my sister, Dana, her best friend, Stacy, me, my best friend, Tommy, my best friend, John, my best friend, Matt, his little brother, Danny, like we would all assemble in the living room and watch this movie. This is how good the Parent Trap is. Have you seen this? Par- yeah, this is the Haley Mills one. This is the Haley Mills Parent Trap. Yep. Not the later on it was re- remade with Lindsay Lohan. So Haley Mills plays Long Island's own. Long Island's own Lindsay Lohan. That's right. Not Haley Mills. <laughs> I think she's England's. Yeah, own. she's she's England's own. <laughs> London, England. <laughs> London, England. <laughs> so Haley Mills plays twin girls who are I'll, I'll encapsulate as much as possible they're at camp together these two girls are at camp together they're strangers but it comes to light that they look a lot like each other they're at summer camp and a rivalry grows between the two girls they don't know each other rivalry grows turns out that they both come from single parents and it comes to light that these girls were twin sisters that were actually separated at birth when their parents got divorced, one of them went with the mom and one of them went with the dad and never knew that the other one existed. So when they find out, sort of hilarity ensues because they look exactly alike. They're actually played by the same woman, as we already said. And what happens is they go on a caper to reunite the divorced parents. It comes to light that you know one of them lives in Boston, one of them lives in L.A., I think. Somewhere in California, but I think it's Southern California. And it turns out that the dad is fixing to get remarried. He's engaged. And that sort of starts a panic that, oh, no, we got to get mom and dad back together. Now, I should also say, when the respective families find out 
about the other twin that they didn't know about or were forgetting about. They were all, everybody's ecstatic when the girls come together. And, you know, so it's never like, oh, yeah, it's never a weird thing where it's like, oh, yeah, we never wanted that one. That's why it's everybody's like, oh, my God, you're the other one. Like, we missed you so much. Like, it's like, it's very strange. It's kind of glossed over the, the fact of like the they were each abandoned yeah, by the yeah. other parent. In, in somewhat of an illegal fashion, it sounds like. I don't know that that's legal. Just yeah. Like, you're just going to abscond with one of these children. You know, it's like it's a little dubious. Yeah, for sure. And the grand, but also the other, mem- you know, the grandparents are cool with it. Everybody's cool with it that the girls are back together again i should say this movie was written and directed by the screen you know was the screenwriting and the directing by david swift based on a 1949 book called lottie and lisa which i never knew about which i believe was a german book originally that was brought over to english and the two girls the two twins are named susan and sharon and basically it's about susan and sharon's sort of plan to reunite the parents and it's just a really funny light really clever there's different set pieces in the movie where the girls decide they're going to stage they're going to reimagine the parents first date at an Italian restaurant and they set up the whole thing and it's very charming and there's a part of the book where things aren't going well so they kind of switch identities and don't tell each other who's who because one's sort of girly and one's sort of tomboyish and they sort of switch places and there's a whole really wonderful scene where they take the soon-to-be stepmom camping, and that's hilarious. It's just a very light and fun movie, and I it's odd because I feel like Disney buried it for a long time. You couldn't find it. You couldn't find it on DVD. There was no f- clips of it on YouTube. You couldn't find it on, on, on home video at all, and I think now it is available because I saw it rather recently and showed it to my oldest to my daughter and you know what's funny about it she liked it but she wasn't infatuated with it you know for some reason all the neighborhood kids whether regardless of whether they were a boy or a girl loved it in my neighborhood and I always felt like oh my gosh like I was actually never going to watch this movie because I thought it was another one of my sister's you know, quote unquote, girly movies. It's a very charming film. If you guys haven't seen it, I'm, I can't speak to the Lindsay Lohan one. I don't know if I've ever seen it. I don't it, think I have either. Or I'm just not remembering it. But this movie is very, very charming and very, very different. And, you know, it's just a quick watch and it's a fun watch. I highly recommend it. Yeah, Haley Mills is an interesting cat to me because I associate her most with Good Morning, Miss Bliss. Which is technically the first season of Say by the Bell. That's right. She's the she's Miss Bliss. She's the teacher. That's right. So that's the role I, I associate with her the most. But obviously, Parent Trap is a pretty close second. Yeah, and she did a bunch of Disney stuff. Yeah, and that of that era. Very talented woman. She's still alive, I think. She I must, think she so. Must be pretty elderly at this point, but she looks she looks good though. She's one of those women that aged well. Yeah, you know, even in into the nineties with the Say by the Bell stuff. So good choice. Thank you, my friend. My final film final is, one. I think, actually the guiltiest pleasure of them all. But it, it, I'm just, I'm not presenting it in this order intentionally. Again, we're going in alphabetical order. The movie is 1998's You've Got Mail. Oh, nice. Nora Ephron obviously directed and produced this movie. And it basically has two protagonists in Tom Hanks and, and Meg Ryan. And I think that out of my movies, this is probably the most well-respected film in its own right, or at least contemporaneous to when it was released. It was pretty popular and people liked it. What I think is interesting about it is that it represents two things that are quite prescient today that weren't back then. It, It almost was a movie that was a little bit ahead of its time in that Tom Hanks runs a, a massive bookstore called Fox 
that is kind of opening these borders or Barnes and Noble. It's so ironic because borders doesn't even exist anymore, but these borders like bookstore that is in Manhattan that is kind of cannibalizing the business of this smaller bookstore run by Meg Ryan, this kind of mom and pop bookstore. And it represented that real fear in the 90s of this cannibalization of mom and pop stores, not by the internet, but by box stores. That was the original wave of kind of shutting down Main Street in order to kind of drive prices as low as possible, the almost Walmart effect, as it were. But the other interesting element of it, hence its name, You've Got Mail, is a reference to, for people that don't know, is a reference to America Online and what would be prompted when you'd get email on there would say, you you know, you've got mail when you would sign up. <laughs> Which is was so iconic to us in the 90s. It's like an irrelevant thing today. But that's the name. And I assume that AOL was in on this because AOL features so prominently in the movie. It's a really cool piece of techno archaeology, really, when you look at it in terms of they're using these primitive laptops with primitive dial up. And sometimes their computers are not even hooked up to the Internet, which recommends to me that maybe they're using wireless DSL or something in the movie. It's pretty, pretty advanced stuff. And. The basic gist of the story is that Meg Ryan, the proprietor of the kind of independent bookstore, Tom Hanks, the proprietor of this chain bookstore, find each other online in a chat room of some sort or something and begin email having an email correspondence with each other, not realizing that they're rivals and actually quite bitter rivals. And there's an interesting supporting cast in it. Parker Posey's in it as Tom Hanks's wife or girlfriend. And Dave Chappelle's in it as Tom Hanks's best friend. That's right. And I can't think of her name, but the mother from All in the Family plays yeah. Meg Ryan's mother in it. Yeah. Very ably. I think she's passed away since. Yeah, Edith. I can't e- yeah, think Edith. of her name. And there's something really special about it. I've seen the movie probably, I would say probably 10 times and never rented it, never saw it in a theater. It's just, it was one of those movies in the in the late 90s, early 2000s, and I assume still today that was just seemed to always be on TV, and I found it quite charming. It was a feel-good movie that packed a lot of different layers and kind of encapsulated the contemporary ex- existential thre- threat of encroaching big-box capitalism, as well as this early and very exciting and very mysterious internet People forget that meeting someone on the internet and kind of exchanging real life information ultimately and meeting with each other, that was very taboo in the 90s. That's something that's very normal today in the in the era of social media and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and and high speed internet and we just all share all of our information with each other and our faces and stuff. That wasn't the way it was. No one, Very few people were going by who they were back then. So in 1998, meeting someone from the internet was 20 years ago. It was quite dramatic. And so there's also that. It's a very interesting window into a different era on the internet, an earlier, and I I dare say more innocent era of the internet. Definitely. So I got to give a shout out to You've Got Mail. It's I think a great I, pick. If you've not seen it, especially if you're a younger person and you might not know what the internet was like in the 90s, this really does give you a pretty good glimpse into it. Absolutely. It's so funny because Tom Hanks has such a swagger in it. Being this guy who has nothing to fear, basically, being this guy who owns these big stores of, can you imagine the swagger Tom Hanks would have in 2018 owning Fox Books? I know. They'd be done, about as done as, as anything at this point. <laughs> You'd be down to his So that's another part. interesting kind of component to it. Yeah, no, definitely. And kind of this reigniting of the almost sleepless in Seattle. This is not the first movie that these two stars have shared, right. the, the, the marquee, as it were. Right. In a very similar kind of story in Sleepless in Seattle, a very kind of not 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 eerily similar, but similar kind of love story. Yeah, similar model. There's something about Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan less so, but the way that they work together works a great deal for me. I've never been a huge fan of Meg Ryan, but I remember people thinking she was so cute and yes. so 
so perfect. The almost perfect encapsulation of like the feminine nature, but also of this cuteness and this approachability. Women liked her. Men, women wanted to be her. Men wanted to be with her. Yeah, kind of situation. Of Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. again, not super relevant to me as a kid. You know? Yeah. Exactly. No, but to, and Tom Hanks is very charming, of course. The, yeah, the, that's a great pick, Kyle. There's a great warmth to that movie. Very inherent warmth to that film. It's a very, very well said. It's a that's a very feel good movie and a nice glimpse into the late '90s New York as well. Absolutely. The biggest oddity of it again is Dave Chappelle in it. And uh, yeah, that's right. Dave Chappelle plays. He plays the like yeah. He plays like the friend. I think he might even work at Fox. He he's like a forgot all about that. One of those, you know, he's like one of his right hand men or something like that. That's an that's an interesting pick. There's a couple of people in my life that really do love that film and. It's also one of those movies maybe that younger kids, I'm not saying super young kids, but there's not a lot of racy stuff in it. It's one of those movies that sort of gets around all that and still works on an adult level. You know what I mean? It's it's very charming. The only thing about it that I think is interesting, if you think about it contextually, is that they're both cheating on their significant others in it. Well, that's true. The thing about it is that it, it threads the needle so well in it that you don't really think about that, but they are overtly cheating on their yes, significant others. Yes, they're in relationships. Yeah. So that's an interesting kind of thing. No, that is, that's well said. But that's my last movie. Very well done. Nice, diverse pick. Thank you. Picks. Likewise. Grouping. Now, before we get into the questions, comments, and concerns, really no questions this time. I really wanted people to share with us their own picks. Looking forward to that. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we do this? No, not really. I mean, I had other, you know, honorable mentions, quote unquote. We talked about The Patriot. We talked about, I was really thinking very much about Guilty Pleasure Movies in two movies specifically that I grew up with, Rocky Three and Rocky Four, sort of when the Rocky franchise got a little more cartoony, you know, with your Clubber Langs and your Hulk Hogan's and your Ivan Drago's, you know, sort of when it yeah, became... Rocky Four is like... You know, it's very... Phenomenal. They're, they're great movies. They're great entertaining movies, but, you know, they're different. Rocky Three and Four are different than Rocky One and Absolutely. Two. Absolutely. You know, so... Yeah, Those and you and I had talked about, you know, I talked about putting Mall Rats on the list and then kind of felt like I don't want to label any Kevin Smith movie as a guilty pleasure movie because I think they're important to me on a different level as far as an independent filmmaker and someone we admire and someone who's become really important to us in, in nerd culture. So, you know, those are about it for me. I, I'm jealous that you thought of Independent Day, Independence Day, actually, because I think that's a great pick. It's a really good one. Thank you. I... Would only add two other movies. Aaron actually, when we were going, we were in Uber on the way to the restaurant earlier tonight, yeah. had brought up her love of the movie Armageddon. This is a movie that she was like obsessed with as a kid. It's another great example alongside Deep Impact, which these two movies are identical to each other basically and came out months apart. I saw them both in the theater with dad. When I was in eighth grade, I think they were both in the early Q1 in the Q2 of 1998. And those are two more examples of great. You know, similar in, in spirit to Independence Day, I guess. Yeah. Two movies that were... It's just so funny, these asteroid collision apocalyptic movies. We've never really gotten another one since. They both came out like very close to each other. Two other good examples. I do think Deep, Deep Impact is the better of the two. That's a good... Those are good choices, too. But let's consult with the audience. Please. Remember, if you support us on Patreon at the $2 level or higher each month, you can submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas at patreon.com slash Stand. If you support us at the $5 a month or up level, you get early access to every episode of Knockback a week early. And by the way, these perks extend in different ways, sometimes identical ways to all the other shows I do. Fireside Chats, the eclectic podcast series. It's an interview series, really. Sacred Symbols, the PlayStation podcast that I do, and SideQuest, the YouTube channel all about video games. So please consider it if you have the extra cash to throw and you like what we do. Tyler Mitchell says, Why do you think we have to be made to feel guilty for enjoying the things we enjoy? 
did something like this exist much prior to the internet giving us all a place to express our opinions? This is a really interesting question because what he's basically asking, Dig, is why are we so judgmental, I guess, of the things that we enjoy or don't enjoy? And why yeah. do we feel like we have to label something that we authentically enjoy? Like, for instance, if I really like Independence Day, then why does it have to be a guilty pleasure? It's almost a moniker that you give to something in an acknowledgement of the greater trend of how something, someone or something feels about something. Yeah. But that you don't agree with. So it is almost like a capitulation. It's an interesting kind of thought. It is. But I do think it is a product of the internet. I think it's a big part of it. I mean, it's it's partially defending yourself and saying, I like this movie, but I don't really like this movie, so don't pick on me. You right. know, type of thing. Right. <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, it's almost like you should like hold, you know, stand your ground. <laughs> Absolutely. If you think that The Parent Trap is one of the great movies of all time. It's wonderful. Then fucking say it. Patrick Molloy says, I studied archaeology and history while in college. For me, guilty pleasure films generally refer to films that I adore, despite their historical and cultural inaccuracies. Stuff like Shanghai Noon, which is a movie you and I hold very close to our hearts. Very much so. And even Dances with Wolves. Do either of you two have films you appreciate in a similar way? I'm surprised to hear you say, even though I understand what you're saying, Patrick, Dances with Wolves is a critically acclaimed movie. I think that that's far away from being a guilty pleasure. Yeah. Even if that's a guilty pleasure for you through your historical and archaeological lens. It seems like it. That's like an Academy Award caliber movie. Sure. So I don't know that I would count that. Shanghai Noon is a great example. Dagan and I saw Shanghai Noon in the, in the movie theater. <laughs> we did. And we were dying. It's specifically, like that movie is authentically really, really funny. Good movie. Underrated. And the drinking game they're playing in the bathtub is something you and I had. Oh, had, my God. Had watched and, and reminisced over. When I got it on DVD, I remember us rewinding that over and over again. So Jackie good. Chan is, you know, Owen Wilson and Jackie Chan are the protagonists, kind of the main actors in the movie for people that are not familiar with Shanghai Noon. And Jackie Chan showed this later in Rush Hour, which I think is an awesome movie. Rush Hour and Rush Hour 2 are fantastic movies. He's funny as hell. He oh, like really, so he gets it. He understands what comedy is. I was exactly going to say that. Yeah. He gets it. He just gets it. For as great of an action star and a kind of a martial artist that Jackie Chan is, I actually really loved how funny he was. He's like, hilarious. Always. And, and I think that quintessential, Rush Hour is the quintessential. Never touch a black man's oh, radio. Right. Rush Hour is a good one. And the, chem and the chemistry between Owen Wilson and Jackie Chan too. But what was he, he was asking about, it was Pat, it's Patrick. It's Patrick Moore. He was asking about historical movies. I have a guilty pleasure one. Pearl Harbor. It's so funny you say that because that was one that I was going to put on my list originally, but I decided not to. That's a pandering ass movie. It is. And it's a movie that I saw. I was a senior in high school when that came out. I remember because dad would occasionally let me skip class on Fridays to go see movies with him. And that's cool. We saw like a bunch of shit like Spider-Man and all that kind of stuff. But I convinced him that I wanted to see Pearl Harbor because it's a historical movie and I was really excited about it. Not realizing at all that it's actually like kind of a heartfelt. It's not a combat movie or a movie about the invasion at all. It's about I don't want to put it in such gender specific terms, but it's like a movie kind of more catered towards women. No, it ends up being that way. And I didn't know that. I yeah. just it was called Pearl Harbor. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And I think Ben Affleck's in it. Ben Affleck's in it. And the, I, I remember the trailers and the advertising really showing the invasion and the zeros and the torpedoes and the battleships and everything like that. Because it's in the movie, but it, it ends up being something different. I just remember dad being, I don't want to say he was like disappointed, but making fun of me being like, why this is like, why did we just see this? There's something almost comical about the movie. It's like, you know, as the zeros are coming, it's like the little girls running in angel suits for no, you know, like dressed up as angels for no reason and stuff like that. I mean, it is what it is, but it's very over the top. I, it's highly recommended. If you guys haven't seen Pearl Harbor, watch it. You'll know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, I've not seen it since I saw it in the theater. Tyson Williams says his favorite or I guess the ones that come to mind for him 
are E.T., which I wouldn't consider a guilty pleasure oh, at all. Oh, goodness, no. Amazing Spider-Man 2, Big Trouble in a Little China, which I wouldn't consider a guilty pleasure. I, Robot, which is certainly a guilty pleasure. Yeah. Jingle All the Way is a, a great Schwarzenegger movie. I can see why anything with him would be a guilty pleasure. Yeah. Though. And finally, X-Men Origins Wolverine. Not a bad hodgepodge of movies, although list. E.T. is not a guilty pleasure movie. It's a good movie. But again, you can even tell in our list that Dagan and I were defining guilty pleasure a little bit differently. And so I can understand if this amorphous term means something different to you. So, yeah, absolutely. So no judgments from me. Absolutely. Benjamin Kane says, my guilty pleasure movie is Harriet the Spy. That's actually a really great movie. <laughs> I am not sure why I like it, but whenever I see it on, on, I cannot help but watch it. The movie that introduced the world to Michelle Trachtenberg. That's true. I don't. Did, Michelle Trachtenberg had a moment. Well, I don't know what happened to her. I, I don't know if she's like know. relevant. She's probably in something, but I don't know. That's a good one. I mean, look her up real quick. That might be a movie that Lilia would like. Yeah, that's actually a good one. That's actually a good one for her. Sean Mason says, growing up, my family owned a copy of The Dark Crystal on VHS. Uh, Despite being freaked out by the creepy animatronics, my sister and I would always watch this. I'll never forget the nightmares I would have watching it. Yep, me so and my know. sister watched that a lot, too. And it just always disturbed the hell out of me. You can't look away at movies like that. It's a good movie. A very important movie, though, because that's when Henson started, you know, Henson and Henson Productions really took, you know, they're known for the the stuff on Sesame Street and The Muppet Show, and they did, that's the first thing, and Jim Henson really wanted to go in that direction. That's really where he was going before his death. That's really what, what he wanted to pursue is that more realistic, darker fantasy stuff. He was very interested in it. So that's a very important movie if you're into that sort of stuff, and it's a good, it's a good film. It's a good, it's it's very different. It always frightened me though, as a kid, and that didn't come out when I was like two. I was older, you know what I mean. <laughs> so, but it always frightened me. It always disturbed me a little bit. Isaac Sinova has the final comment for this episode. He says, "I feel this means that you enjoy movies that you know are objectively terrible." I have several of these, and it usually involves either movies of the kung fu or horror genres. The horror genre is certainly one of these. I actually Googled just like guilty pleasure movies. I just want to see what happened. And IMDb list came up littered with horror movies where I'm like, I don't Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street are guilty pleasure movies. Yeah, that's weird. Children of the Corn. I don't think so. Oh, wow. I don't think so, but okay. But here's what Isaac says. He says, or he says, characters I love are finally brought to life, such as Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat. (laughs) live action those movies are fucking terrible they're so bad i love seeing these characters finally acted out and not just in my imagination in a similar vein i have seen the suicide squad movie multiple times for that same reason margot robbie is really fun to watch as harley quinn i'm sure she is she's great i know there must be something wrong with me it's so weird that will smith's in that movie as Deadshot, yeah that's right? weird it's not it's not good like they they paid him a pretty penny for that really oh, obscure they pay, role. They pay him for pretty penny for everything. He yeah, does. absolutely. It's funny, dude, because I saw I went you know when I was at kind of funny we used to go see movies to do review like those video reviews we sure. used to do. I think they yeah. still do them. And we went and saw Suicide Squad at Alamo Draft House on the in the Mission in okay. San Francisco. And there was some sort of accident. Someone smashed into like a pole several blocks away or something, and the power went out. Oh no way! And the guys were like uh, disappointed and wanted to go see the movie in Daly City, so they like got tickets and went and took an Uber SUV or something to Daly City. And I was like, you know what? That's a sign from above that I don't need to see this movie. I'm going home. <laughs> and you didn't. See and I never. It. And I left. Yeah, I'm like, I was so reluctant to see it. I was trying to be kind of like a team player. And when that happened, I was like, that is the most serendipitous sign from above that I've ever seen. And that movie obviously was terrible. Yeah, I mean, you're not missing much, Jared. You, you know, you had Jared Leto's Joker and. Harley Quinn is cool, you know, charming character. She's she really does steal the show, and it's not just about the way she looks. She's oh, of course. really carries off that role, 
you know, she's very, very, very entertaining in that. But I can't think of much else. You know, the effects are cool, but yeah, it's a very strange movie. Just another DC failure. Yeah. Post Christopher Nolan DC failure. They tried. Dave, that's all I have from the audience. Thank you so much for submitting your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas. We really do appreciate it. Do you have a lightning round that you want to go through I before do we indeed. wrap things up? I do indeed. Let's do it. And I'm just thinking, maybe since guilty pleasure movies and the guilty pleasure part of that is such a broad term, maybe we could do, maybe we could revisit it and just do a bad movies. You know, five movies that you think are bad and five movies that I think are bad. Maybe, I mean, maybe something to consider. Right? Absolutely. I mean, if we do the shows for as long as we intend on doing it, which is for several years at least, or we're going to, we're going to, we're going to need call it bad, good movies. Yeah, that's a nice one. Yeah. Something like that, you know? Make a note. All right. I'll, I'll put that on the list. Because your kiss, your kiss is on. <laughs> Chris Raygun, the co-host, my co-host of Sacred yeah. Symbols, the PlayStation podcast I do, was telling me how he recently saw Tears for Fears and Hall and Oates live. Oh, wow. What? And He's like, young. Oh, he know, he appreciates yeah. that? Wow. And I was like, because Tears is one of my favorite bands. I know that. Tears are. for Fears is a top 10 band for me. And I never got to see them. And they play really obscure and weird places. Like, they play wineries and weird shit like that where you have to pay, That's like, tons of money. Strange. They've made some, the, some of the best music in the 80s, basically. Dude, songs from The Big Chair and The Hurting are, like, <laughs> so good. So good. I love those fucking albums. So who opens for who in that situation? I would assume Hall and Oates must open for Tears for Fears. I would think so. But it's weird. Tears, I mean, you think Hall and Oates, Hall and Oates could be... Had they were huge at one time. Yeah. But... Right. But not, not, Still not, don't know not, which is Hall and which is Oates. Who's Hall? Daryl Hall is the blonde-haired dude. He's the tall one. Yeah. So we could just say Hall and tall. Hall and tall. Because <laughs> I have to Oates do is that. the one with the mustache. Oates is the one with the mustache. Because Oates get caught in his mustache when he eats oatmeal. Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> Ramon dressed up as Oates in, in, for Halloween once. That's it, was awesome. it, it was perfect. It was great. With no Hall? No, yeah. Just by himself, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I think so. That yeah. makes it even better. Yeah, I think it's, that makes it 10 times Ramon better. used to get pretty excited about Halloween. In yeah, co- that's cool. Yeah, he did. I didn't. Like, Same he was as my best friend. I think he was. He played. Uh, I, I forget what wrestler he was. What, like a bunch of our friends were wrestlers one year, but I know that he was Jesse Constopoulos one year as well, which was that's really a great. Good one. I think he had like a he had like a Jesse and the Ripper shirt on and stuff like that. It was cool. I could see him doing that. Very passionate. All right, here we go. You ready? Yeah. We'll keep this one short because this is late. What time is it, Kyle? Should we add a little context here? Yeah. It's two thirty. No, like it's three o three. Three o three. Okay. See how much we love you guys. Black and white or color? Color. Practical effects or digital effects? Practical effects. 80s comedy films or 90s comedy films? That's a tough one. That is a tough one. I mean, that's a tough 90s thing. comedy is probably overall better. Or yeah. at least there's a greater volume of great movies from that era. What are you thinking era? of like things like American Pie and that kind of stuff? Yeah, American Pie is a really important movie to me. That's, that's like a seminal team movie for my generation. Yeah, definitely. And it's an authentically great movie. It's a funny movie. It's really, really funny. And actually, American Pie 4, I went and saw in the theater when it came out in like 2014 or 2013, something like that. And it was fucking awesome. It was so funny to see everyone together. There's more like Adam Sandler movies are in the 90s. Right. That's true. That's a good one. That's I mean, a good there's point. a lot that, you know, for as much as I love Back to School and Caddyshack. Right. All the 80s stuff. The Triple Indy. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> So, yeah, that's a toughie, but you'll say 90s. Yeah, I think 90s is probably safer. Another day you might say 80s, but I may. I may. Maybe I'll ask again. Please do. Work with kids or work with dogs? Dogs. You're going with dogs on that. Yeah, I I, I don't know that I can handle the kids thing. Horror or comedy? 
comedy, but I love horror too. This is a broad one, but just give it your best shot. Guilty or innocent? Guilty. You're correct. PG or PG-13? PG-13. Red Dawn. That's right. Popcorn or candy? Fuck, Red Dawn's a great guilty pleasure movie. Uh, that is a good... That, that I didn't include that because I know we both love it so much. Yeah, I love it so too much. much I actually authentically think it's great. So it's I guess one of it's my favorite a, movies, probably. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. It's, Literally, the, it's, the original. Oh, it's super up there. Especially the scroll in the beginning is like the best when they just explain in like five sentences so what happened. Good. So it's good. like crop failure. I mean, we could do a topic on Red Dawn. We could just we can Red absolutely Dawn. do a topic on Red Dawn. We can talk about that movie. because Red Dawn not only inspired Red Dawn. I wanted Red Dawn to happen. I authentically wanted. I still want it to happen. I know it's like a weird fantasy, but I think a lot of people feel that way. I I walk outside to walk Lola sometimes in the morning and look out into the distance and wish I saw Nicaraguan paratroopers flying in <laughs> on behalf of the Soviet Union. Ready to it's, shoot up everybody. It's strange, but I feel you a little bit on that. It I was like to... it was a pretty socio politically complicated movie about the proxy war that they were fighting. Oh, like, you didn't God. really. It wasn't the Soviets. No, it was very cool. Uh, John Milius, God bless you. And for people Absolutely. that for people that don't know, John Milius also worked on Apocalypse Now, which is another fantastic film. But yeah. I had as a joke at my desk at IGN a picture that I printed out of John Milius that I hung on my desk, and it was an amazing picture of him smoking a cigar. Like it was one of the, it was a still of him, like that he, you know, like a, a production still. Or yeah, so, yeah. Something that he would, I guess, circulate if he was trying to shop his movies of him holding a shotgun and smoking a cigar. And I'm like, you fucking rule, <laughs> John Milius. Amazing. You're an amazing man. And so, as for inspiration, as from one writer to the next, I printed out his picture and kept it on my desk in a frame. That's amazing. <laughs> you should still have that. We salute you, John Milius. All right, and we will go. We'll finish this up. Movie star or character actor? Character actor. Soundtrack or score? Soundtrack. Although the score is so underrated in a lot of movies, I mean, it's, they're radically different things. Yeah, that's true. Yep. Theater, last one, theater or wait for cable? Wait for cable. All right. My well, friend. not wait for cable. Now we don't have to wait for we, wait for streaming or Amazon Prime option so we don't have commercials and true. there's no cuts. That's true. But I hate the movie theater. I hate it. Oh, I didn't know that. You really don't like it. I really don't want to be in the movies. It, I, one of my new, it's funny. My New Year's resolution this year was to go to a movie every week and I only was managed to do it, I think, five weeks. And then Going I was like, to I, a movie every week is a lot. Like, I just was like, I want to see 50 movies this year. Okay. Like there are certainly obscure movies. Like force yourself to go see something every week and see right, what happens. Right, right. And I did it for a little while. I went and saw The Post, which was really great. I remember that. I went and saw Darkest Hour, which was about Churchill in 1940. Yeah, you saw some good ones. So I saw a few movies. I I saw The Last Jedi, but I was just like, I don't, I can't keep this up. And there's a movie theater like two blocks from me. Right. Right. So I was. Just, I don't know. It would, for me, I was just like, I just can't compel myself to do this anymore. It's something about watching the comfort of your home. You have a decent sized television, right? Yeah. Get the snacks you want. Yeah, and and want. it's it's cheaper. Even if it's, I, cheap. I'm really of the mind. I know that it's probably financial suicide, considering what these companies want to do and how much money they spend and how much money they want to make and how ticket prices have gone up so much. But I would be very compelled by the idea of. Movie X coming out, big big budget movie X coming out in the theater, and the same day coming out on Amazon Prime, and you pay twenty five bucks for it. I would do that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Are yeah, you really going to lose that much money doing that? I I would gather that you might make more money doing that. I would think so, and plus it's just the convenience of it, you know. So, well, that's a good lightning round we did there, Dagan. Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much for that. I think it's time we go to bed. Yeah, it's bedtime. 
So we appreciate all of your support. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for submitting this topic and thank you for voting for this topic. Remember, again, to support us on Patreon if you can. If you're listening to the free feed, please do consider giving us a nice review on iTunes or Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you listen to us. It does help us algorithmically find a new audience, so it's very helpful. So either way you can support us or both ways you can support us, we'd really appreciate it. We'll see you next time for more Knockback. Thanks again. Take care. Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Azan Isa Al-Raisi, Ahmad Elways, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Jeremy Brokos, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, Dylan Burns, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Will Caldwell, Jason Camargo, Matthew Canoy, William O'Carroll, Matthew Carter, William Cashel, Brian Chand, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Steve Clifford, Chris Cochran, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, David Cox, Cutter Crow, Nick Cummings, Daniel Diamore, Daniel Delanikos, Travis Travis DePew, Mitchell Durkash, David Ellis, Albert Escobar, Brian Fink, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Stefano Fontana, Fodios Frangos, Connor Gassian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem Al Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Nicholas J. Gorblish, Tyler Goodwin, David S. Graham, Josh Gravelick, Ryan Greenwood, Dominic Rastini, Miranda Grubba, Random Guy Radio, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Asa Haas, Josh Yeager, Clarence Johnson, Paul Joyce, Greg Julefs, Jeremy Key, John Clote, Kevin Kamaki, Taylor Christian Laudrin, Christian Larson, Jackson Lasuqua, Daniel Laws, Joe Laws, Austin, Don Q. Lee, Ashlyn Lee, Anthony Lencioni, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Mark Liberto, Lewin Ray Loper, Brendan Lyle, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, Michael Martello, Joe McPartland, Albert Miranda, Mad Mock Media, Patrick Malloy, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Connor Nesbitt, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Reed K. Parker, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Enrique Perez, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Toby D. Ryman. Schneider, Austin Riley, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Matthew Savoy, John Scholes, Chris Schaefer, Toby Schutman, German Sidhu, Riley Smith, Gerard Stuave, Stephen Summingit, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Tam Tran, Esteban Valentin, Adam Van Curen, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Dade Michael Edward Went, Griffin West, Mike Wayant, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Richter86, Barrick, Mubarak, Dav9834, Chris, Wyatt Henry, and Donk2015.